Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Flying Baton Podcast. This is just a reminder that we now support chapter markers, so if your podcast app supports it, you can jump around to the topics that interest you most. I believe all of the apps support it except Spotify, so check that out. Also, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode when we have our beginning band pick of the week. This is where we dive into a piece of music that you could possibly use for your program and talk a little bit about its composition and we listen to some audio examples. All right, let's get started. Originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico, Sammy Chariez began her teaching career at Brambleton Middle School in Ashburn, Virginia. She opened the school with Martin Blount in 2017. Her bands have received consistent superior ratings at assessment, and enrollment has increased in the program every single year. There are now 500 students in the band program. Ms. Chari has received her bachelor's degree in music education from George Mason University and is working on her master's degree at the Vandercook College of Music. During the summer, she is a premier instructor at the Vocal Majority and Operation Oboe Camp, as well as the Judith LaPelle Summer Woodwind Camp and the Rappahannock Summer Music Camp. When she's not doing something related to music, she loves to bake and spend time with her family and dogs. For her full bio, please check out the show notes. All right, everybody. Uh, we are here with Sammy. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. All right. So if you could uh, preach one thing from the mountaintops to all non-Oboist band directors to hear everywhere, what would it be and why? I would say that all students should be using handmade oboe reeds by a professional oboist, and you can find those online anywhere, although I do start my beginners on store-bought reeds. Gotcha. And what what is the rationale for uh, having them play on the handmade reeds? Like, what is what differences does it make in their playing? So with handmade reeds, either you have a teacher that's in front of you and they can cater that reed to your embouchure, to your, to your structure, to your mouth, everything. They can cater it to you. Um, while a store-bought reed is a one size fits all that doesn't actually fit all. And if you're buying handmade reeds from an external source, somewhere from uh, out of state or even in state, then there are multiple options for you. Like every reed maker makes the reeds differently. And so some might not work for you. There are different shapes that you can use for your cane. There's a lot of um, variables that can go in that might or might not work for you. Um, some of my favorite reed makers uh, go to vocalmajority.com. They have a store. I also uh, work there during the summers. There's a summer camp vocal majority in Operation Oboe Camp that happens in Virginia and other states started off in Texas. I love their handmade oboe reads, but I've tried many of their student models and uh, I have a favorite for my own face and for my students, but some of my students don't like that particular read and I can have them try others. And there's just different options that students have to go through. There have, I've tried many oboe reads from many different makers to kind of have like a set list for students to have that is going to be best for them or what might or might not work or what's worth the money or what's not. And um, after doing this, it really just depends on the student. But I do have my favorite reads from other read makers besides myself that I can recommend to students um, as well. So the um, the, the store-bought reads, uh, like the Jones reads, are they like like shaved off with like an even gradient? Is that right? Like it just goes from thick to thin with like a machine cutter? For the most part, yeah. There's a profiler that they use that'll just make the read essentially for you. Um and it's kind of like that, at least with the Jones reads, there's 
some shape to it, depending like some of the, and you can see in the light, uh, how thick a reed is or how thin it might be. But for the most part, yeah, the Jones reeds just have a thin tip and then a thicker uh, body. But most, yeah. uh, if, you, if you could, I wish you could actually see this in a podcast, but reeds are definitely different. And a store-bought reed is more like gradient. It's just thicker in the middle and uh, thinner at the tip, but that's not exactly what goes into <laughs> uh, scraping and carving a reed. Yeah. Now, do you uh, teach your students how to make reeds or do you just kind of save that for when they get a little bit older? My public school students, I do not teach them how to make reeds, um, but my private students, I do as they're, as they get older, only those that show complete interest. I do recommend like even with my beginners, I start talking about how we make our own reads. I'm like, check out my reads and look at this cute thread that I have, all these different colors. Like I do make it a big deal. I have a double read class. I'm very fortunate to have that just oboes and bassoons and just stressing how special they are and how there's all these different things that oboists and bassoonists can do um, that make us different than everybody else. And I just try to encourage them to keep going with the instrument, but also by showing them you know, all the different things that we have to do <laughs> versus a clarinetist or, you know, a trumpet player. Um, but yeah. So could you talk about um, what, what is crowing and what is the purpose for crowing? Oh, for sure. So crowing on a reed tells you um, the pitch of the reed. If you have a reed, the way that you crow on a reed is by putting basically the entire reed into your mouth. And, and you're not making a certain embouchure. You're just taking the entire thing, putting even the thread into your mouth and just blowing. The sound that you get from just doing that action will tell you, will give you a pitch. And it sounds um, very ugly. I don't know if I can demonstrate that on, <laughs> on here, but it's definitely a, uh, an interesting sound. But the crow will give you a pitch. And the pitch that you're looking for is a C. And when you're starting off students and when they buy their store-bought reads or if they have a teacher prior to getting to you and they have their teacher's reads, you need to have all your students uh, soak up their reads. I always stress before we even start playing is, you know, having their water cups and that's about it. We don't touch the oboe first. We touch the reed first and talk about having our supplies like our cleaning swabs and our um, uh, water cups and uh, polishing gloss, all that kind of thing. But when the students soak the reed up, uh, they play the entire read and if whatever pitch comes out, we use a tuner. I like to, I have an Apple TV that I bought for my room and we have TE tuner that projects on there from my phone. And so kids can kind of see what their pitch is. And if their crow is under a C, then they're going to be flat. If their crow is over a C, then it's going to be sharp. Of course, with oboe or any double reeds or many instruments, you can just adjust the pitch using your embouchure. Um, but for the most part, you don't have to work as hard to adjust the pitch on every single note if your reed is just in tune and hitting a C. For the crow, if you're hearing a bunch of different pitches at the same time, then it's just not a refined read. It's not, <laughs> uh, it's going to play for you, but it's, it's, it's probably not going to be in tune. If you have a crow that has a multiple octaves of a note, whether it's a C or B or whatever it might be, that's a good sign. A multiple octaves in a crow is great. Um, that is my goal when I make reads to strive for multiple octaves in a crow. But definitely the most important part is that the pitch is a C. If you hear a bunch of other sounds and it's just not refined, it's not ready, or it's been scraped off too much, that kind mm. of thing. So I've, I heard someone say recently uh, they went to some sort of clinic. I, I, I wasn't in attendance, but they said something about like, uh, I think this was a professional bassoon player, but they were talking about they don't soak reeds anymore. They just put them in their mouth. What's, what's the kind of the thought behind that? 
Um, I personally always soak my reads in a cup, um, but I always teach students that they should never leave the read in a cup and walk away. So I dip all the way I make my reads and the way I treat even other um, read makers reads is that I dip the read in water. I hold it. I don't ever just let it sit because the tip can be thinner than paper. And what you're just doing is uh, ruining the tip slowly by just letting it sit in the cup. And so I just hold it for a couple seconds and then I take it out of the cup and let it rest on the rim. And I just leave it there while I put my instrument together and it should be good to go. Uh, I always tell my students to use a water cup with clean water that hopefully they are changing out every single day. Um, I provide cups for them. If they forget their containers at home, you can use salad dressing containers. You, I use a salad dressing container. You can buy an actual oboe reed or bassoon reed uh, soaking cup that looks cute. You can get uh, a medicine bottle, an old medicine bottle and put some stickers on it. And now it's yours as a soaking cup. But I definitely don't recommend using your mouth only because uh, your saliva is meant to break down your food and it's just only going to break down your read the longer that you do that. Are there students that forget their container and or do it? And yeah, there's plenty of students that do that. And I used to do that when I didn't know when I was a beginner. But it's definitely recommend your reads will last longer if you soak them in actual water. And it should be room temperature water, not, not cold. And I know that some school sounds, it's, you can't help it. I have students that bring just a water bottle and then they pour their own water into the cup. That's fine. Um, and I have students that go to the water fountain. If the water is too cold, you're going to have your read kind of close up on you. Mm. If the water is uh, too hot, then it's going to open up. If you're soaking your reed for too long, it's going to turn into like a tree stump and you won't be able to play into it. It's just going to open the uh, the opening too, too large. If you don't soak your reed enough, then your reed will either not vibrate at all. And there's all those different um, variables. But I do tell my kids to get room temperature water into their reed cup. You only soak the reed up to the cane. You never soak it to the thread, especially with them. Um, these store-bought reeds like Jones, they have a plastic covering around the very top and the plastic covering will come off and then it can unthread. Mm. Um, with my own home uh, handmade reeds, I don't, I could soak up the thread. It doesn't matter. It's not going to unravel, but it could. So I only ever soak up the cane part of the oboe reed. Are there any, like, are there any simple adjustments that a non-oboist band director could make on a student's reed? Um, if, if it's having certain issues or should they just best leave it to a pro? That is a good question. I don't recommend somebody that doesn't know how to play the oboe or have anything to do with reeds actually touch a reed with a knife or a razor blade. I mean, I've had like my uh, co-teacher Martin and he's amazing and I would trust him if I explained to him what to do. I would, I would be able to trust him with a razor blade and like, uh, cutting the tip off a little bit off a reed that just sounded too flat or something like that, but I really don't recommend it. If that is something that uh, there's nothing else that a teacher could do, then if a student's read is not vibrating, things you can do without a knife or a razor blade is checking the opening of the read. Your goal for the opening should be uh, like a football kind of shape. It shouldn't be too open, it shouldn't be circular, and it shouldn't be too closed. Um, if it's too circular, a brand new read will probably be like this because it's you know brand new and has been played on. I do something called a read massage, and I teach my kids how to do the read massage after I show it to them. But it's after your read has soaked up um, for a minute or so, then you press down close to the thread and you're using your thumb and your index finger to close the reed 
down to close the opening a little bit and I hold it for a couple seconds and I move up the reed. But this is not something that you should press down hard because you can just snap the reed <laughs> instantly. And so I slowly work my way up and I don't touch the tip because the tip is the most fragile part of the reed. But that's if the reed is too open. And then we soak it and we try playing it. If it's still too open, you try that. You just do the same process again of what I call a reed massage. And it's this is like a last resort, but definitely for new reeds, I end up doing um, a reed massage for my brand new beginner kids on their first day and teach them how to do that themselves while being careful. For a reed that's too closed, it's a little scarier, but you do have to take the sides of the reed to make the opening wider. You have to do that very, very carefully. And the reed does have to be fully soaked. If not, it will just snap. And so you do have to be careful with that. But if your reed's opening is very closed, then it, you're going to end up be you're gonna be playing and having to open it up yourself plenty of times. And it just gets frustrating and it's just annoying. So recommending, if you're getting from a store, uh, I recommend students to actually look, like I to ask the cashier, can I look at the reeds? And the students can actually open the cases and look at the openings themselves and make sure it's not a very circular opening or not a very flat opening. And so the ones that they like, they buy, if they're going to do it from the store. Handmade, obviously, unless there are teachers in front of you, you can't, you don't have that luxury. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's uh, back up just a little bit. Do you guys do like uh, auditions or mouthpiece testing when you decide who's going to uh, play the oboe? Yes, for sure. We have um, instrument nights where students from certain schools come in and try out every instrument. We have a professional at each table at every instrument and we test them out. The way that I test out oboes and that my clinicians have tested out, um, well, potential oboists, is getting the reed. They soak up the reed. They show the student how to form the correct embouchure and they play it. They try to play the reed. If a student is having a hard time with the read and we're not able to diagnose and prescribe the right way to make a sound to come out, then there are there are uh, there are probably some issues with either the way that their tongue is in their mouth or just the way that their um, the structure of their face might be. But when they're testing out, we always start on the read. We don't give them the entire instrument. If a student happens to have a really great sound on the read and they're following instructions very carefully and understand, you know, the whole officer technique, jaw drops. Uh, I like to say, say the word mo and then keep that shape mo the whole time so that your lips are a little bit rolled in and that your jaws always drop. You never bring your jaw close to your teeth. And so if a student can do that and make a sound come out, then we let them uh, play the oboe, but it's the, the teacher is holding the oboe for them while they are blowing and that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of the time a student could be successful on the read. And when we look at their fingers, when we ask them to hold it themselves, if it's something that they're really passionate, like I really want to play this weird instrument, but then, uh, we look at their fingers and a lot of the time we've had students that are double jointed in their fingers. And so their fingers kind of, uh, bend the other direction and it doesn't help them play the oboe. I have one student that, uh, we did not test with their hands first and he's a seventh grader now and he has the hardest time out of all the other oboists um, fingering any notes because of his double jointed fingers and then gets stuck. And while he can still play it and he can still play well, he just, it's more frustrating for him. And so something to definitely check for when you're doing an, uh, like an instrument night or when you're doing uh, instrument tryouts is if they can make a great sound, they can follow your directions. That's great for the embouchure, but you also need to check their hands and making sure that they're not double jointed as well. 
Do you have them do any uh, pitch matching or singing in the audition? Uh, yeah. So one, if the, if the student, this is if they're very serious about playing it, then we ask, can you match pitch? Like, do you like to sing? Uh, and if they say no or yes, like, okay, well, are you able to like match something? Can you hum for me? And I would hum like a, I don't know, something easy in the middle of the range. And if they can hum it back to me, I'm like, great. It's not a requirement to be able to have, um, to be able to match pitch, but I highly recommend it. Um, I have a student who has, uh, she doesn't forget what the exact condition is, but she does have um, hearing aids. And I have to use something called an FM when I teach so she can hear, but she can still match pitch on oboe pretty well. And having a tuner in front of her is always helpful for her and making sure if, if she's not aware that she's too sharp or something, I just tell her and she can adjust that and she does a really good job. But it's not every kid that can do that. And I do recommend that a student have a good ear to play the oboe, but I don't think it's um, a requirement. Gotcha. So my friend Steve Cash, when he does his uh, auditions, he asks the kids some like some non-band questions as part of the the audition process, and he asks the oboe player specifically, "Do you keep a clean room?" <laughs> <laughs> I love that. My uh, non-band related questions for again when the student's done with their instrument tryouts and they give me a slip of paper and they say, "I want to play the oboe," I'm like. All right, take a seat. And so, and so we have a nice conversation. I'm like, do you like a challenge? Are you the kind of person who's independent? Like, do you need somebody to help you out? Does your mom or dad have to help you with your homework at all times? Or are you like the kind of person who likes to complete their homework on their own and likes to turn in things on time? And the issue with many uh, school systems is that there's one oboe per school and that one oboist has to be able to survive on their own. So it has to be a very special student to do that. I'm not just saying that because I'm an oboist, but um, our students, fortunately, we have about nine oboists that are beginners. And so they have at least a, a family there, but definitely being able to be independent and understanding. And I always tell them, like, I, it's not to not encourage them to play the oboe, but I definitely tell them it's one of the most challenging instruments in the band. So if you wanted to go through band and you want it to be easy, then this is not the instrument for you. But if you are up for this challenge, and this is going to be great for you, but definitely having to sit your potential oboist down and telling them, like, this is what you're going to expect from the oboe. And I have these students who are very, very interested do a second tryout. So I have a, a clinician who does the tryouts. And when a student is very, very confident, I have them do a second tryout with me. And uh, then I actually teach them. I do like a miniature lesson with them and show them, okay, this is how you're going to finger a B natural. If you play recorder, yeah, same thing, bad, B-A-G. And I have them do that. And if they can follow my instructions and they look willing to learn, then I'm like, yes, you are an oboist. But for uh, the most of the time, if a student is really interested and I step them down and tell them like, look, this is going to be a challenging instrument. If that's not what you're looking for, then this is not the instrument for you. Then you usually that, you know, <laughs> uh, takes them to another instrument. So definitely asking non-band relating questions to a, uh, like a potential oboist is a good idea. What are your thoughts, um, maybe advantages or disadvantages disadvantage, of starting someone on oboe versus switching them from something later? Because I know a lot of programs don't start oboe. They try to pull a flute or clarinet player later or maybe a saxophone player. Um, I don't think there is a big difference in starting an oboist later versus starting them uh, from the get-go. Since we happen to have an oboist teacher, band director, then I start them as beginners because I, because I can. Um, but... 
I've had plenty of private students that are people that used to play flute or clarinet and they switch to oboe and they do a great job doing that and they learn quickly because they already know how to read music and rhythms and they understand articulation and they understand how to practice and all that. So I don't think there's a massive difference. I do, I enjoy starting my kids off from beginners. Something uh, interesting or something I recommend doing as a band director, even if you are a double read player or are not, most of the time, a lot of students are in uh, mixed instrumental classes or heterogeneous classes. We have homogeneous classes and we're very lucky to have that. But it, this happened this past year. And so for the students, there's going to be like a bassoonist in a brass class and uh, an oboist in a flute class. And that happens a lot. And so if that's the case, we have a bassoon club and oboe club. And it's not, it's, I mean, it's not really a club, but we have the students come in either before school or after school, especially if you have a student that's in a mixed instrumental class, those bassoonists and oboists need that attention. And so we have an oboe club or a bassoon club and that's when we kind of teach the students how to put their instrument together and just basics before you put them into a class with a bunch of flutes or clarinets and you have to teach the other 29 students how to do their own thing. So having uh, clubs like bassoon club, oboe club, clarinet club, whatever you might need um, prior to the class that you're going to start teaching, putting things together and all that, it's going to be really beneficial for your students. Um, so regardless of whether you start them later or from the get-go, if you have that situation where you have double read players in a mixed instrumental class, you do have to take some time out of your uh, of your day to hold kind of these after-school sessions or before-school sessions with your students to help them out. Um, so let's talk a second um, about the, the oboe itself. Um, are there, aside from the $100 Amazon models, which I'm sure are fantastic, um, are there any uh, particular models that you would either watch out for or specifically recommend for a beginning student? Yes, definitely. So for my beginners, we don't have oboes. Uh, well, we have a couple oboes for students to rent. They are nice uh, Fox 331s. They, those are all plastic. They have all the extra keys. They're basically like plastic professional oboes. They're intermediate, but we have some of those for our students to use, but we give those to our eighth graders and some seventh graders. For I think this year, every seventh grader, every eighth grader got one of those oboes. But our beginners, when we don't have enough, uh, one of those nice oboes to give them, then they have to rent outside of a school. And we give them a list of acceptable brands. And we, we very much stress to the parents that the model or brand of the instrument that you get is might determine how successful your child is at this instrument. And if you're just going to get a random one from Amazon, and I had a kid get one from Costco, um, oh, it, it just, <laughs> it really affects their enjoyment of the instrument and their success. Like the student's oboe from Costco was was a hot mess. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the poor thing just kept breaking and I kept having to fix it. And it, and it just wasn't, I don't even know how the, how he even survived. And um, but they just couldn't afford doing the whole rental program. And we had no other oboes to supply to that student. And so that was, you know, they had to get that Costco oboe because they didn't want to do the monthly rental because it's cheaper to buy. But if you can rent from an outside source or from the school itself, I highly recommend doing that. The brands that I recommend, um, really good brands are Fox and Yamaha. Um, I think the 333 is a beginner plastic oboe. I don't recommend buying any instrument your first year, definitely only renting. 
but a Fox 33 is a beginner oboe. I think the Fox 31 is an intermediate oboe and Fox 330 is another intermediate oboe. And those are the ones that we use in our schools. Um, our beginners, I have some students that use the Yamaha. I think it's 201 is the beginner. And they, I mean, they're so, they sound great and they, it's just made for beginners. Like there's like a, to play a D, the last key in your ring finger in the right hand is thicker. So for students with those smaller hands, they don't have to stretch far to get to that last uh, key. And it also is, there's no hole in there, which is the hardest thing when you start getting into their intermediate oboes is to cover that last hole with that ring finger. So the beginner oboes have it all filled in and it's raised to help uh, beginners out. So I love the Yamaha beginner oboes. Um, the Fox 333s also have the hole covered, but I don't believe that they are raised. But there are schools that they have nothing but like a Bundy or a Selmer oboe. And that is, if that's what a student has and that's what they get and that's okay. And they can do a good job. And as long as that instrument is serviced and has um, all the pads fixed up and all, everything in adjustment and no springs loose or gone, then I, even a Bundy Selmer oboe is going to be a good choice for that student if that's the only instrument that they have. And that's perfectly okay. I started off on one of those from eBay that my dad got me <laughs> and I survived to tell the tale and it works as long as someone knows how to fix it or fix it all the time, if that's the case. Yeah. So I noticed um, on some of the student that my school had, like the school owns, it does mm -hmm. not have the, uh, the left pinky F key. <sighs> like how imperative yes. is it that beginning models have, have that specific key? Yes, there are, I don't know any beginner models that have that left F key. And it is frustrating because that is the the least known F fingering on the oboe, but it should be, if, if not the first, the second fingering for F that they learn. And no beginner oboes have that left F key. I believe there are some brands, I think maybe Howard has an expensive beginner oboe to buy that I think might have the left F, but those are expensive instruments and you have to buy it. And I never recommend buying <laughs> for a beginner their first year. And um, it's important if you're talking about the left F, but there are three different Fs that you can do on the oboe. And that is an important, especially because we're playing the key of B flat for like, the first year, um, is to make sure that the oboists know when to use all three of those Fs and how to finger all three of those Fs. That is one of the first things that we go over after we do like a like B, A, G bag so they can at least play a tune when they go home. After we do that, and we use the essential elements books and they start off um, for the full band classes, it starts off on a concert F. And so we have to teach our oboists those three different Fs and when to use them. And I always, like if we're playing a B flat scale, I ask, okay, which F are you going to use now? And then they have to respond. Or if we're playing an F scale, which F are you going to use now? Which is different. Or when we're playing a passage and we look at that one specific measure, at the beginning of Essential Elements, it'll tell you, uh, use forked F here, use left F, or no, it doesn't say left, use forked or regular F. Um, but after that, it stops telling you. So I make sure that I ask my students, which F are you going to use for this exercise? But they have to know that is a constant uh, problem with beginners is when they get older, they're using the wrong F or an, uh, an F that just doesn't sound good for that particular excerpt. Um, but my least favorite F and every oboe's least favorite F is the forked F. And that's the, uh, F, the F fingering that you kind of have to use if you don't have a left F as beginners. Um, because that's the finger they should use when you go from an E flat or from a D flat. You have to use that fork depth. But it has a different tone color and it's most likely extremely out of tune on the instrument. 
And just to be mindful of that when you're trying to tune a band on a concert F and you expect the oboes to play an F, don't let them play a forked F because it's not most likely not going to be in tune. Um, so forked F is for going from an E flat or to a D flat and regular F is going into like an, an F scale or in a C scale and left F you can use it all of the time. And so if you're going to go from an E flat or a D flat using a left F is, is encouraged and sounds way better than using forked F. But if you have fast passages in like the key of A flat or D flat, you're going to use forked F for your uh, 16th note runs or whatever. Um, but definitely making sure that your beginners know the differences between all the Fs. Once they hit seventh grade or they're much more serious about their uh, oboe playing in their second year, recommending to buy an oboe with that left F key, like those intermediate Fox oboes, intermediate uh, Yamaha oboes. It's just so important for them to start learning that as soon as possible and not waiting so long to start learning the left up. Yeah. So, so you teach them uh, all, the, all the fingerings right out of the gate. And are you, are you teaching them um, to, use, to, to avoid the fork def unless absolutely necessary? Or is there a time period where you have them default to fork def for a while and then change that later? after they do the BAG and they can make a great sound on one note or all three of those notes and they can articulate really, really well, then I instantly start teaching them F and I show them the different fingerings for the F. We start off with regular F, um, which is uh, thumb, one, two, three, one, two, and then some people call it banana key, which is sounds good, or sliver key, I call it weird key. Um, personally <laughs> make me laugh. So I, I choose weird key. And, um, so that's their regular F and I start with that fingering. As soon as we're done with teaching F with the regular fingering, I will teach them the forked F as well. I'm like, well, we're so cool. We have multiple fingerings for an F. <laughs> Check this out. And you should totally know both of these fingerings and like know them. So if I ask you to show me a forked F, you like can. And then they are able to play the forked F as well. Um, but definitely for the beginning of their oboe method books, especially for essential elements, it starts off in an F and then you hit E flat. So they can play an F and in the regular F and then they can play an E flat in the next tune, which is just a whole note E flat. But as soon as they have to go in between, they have to be able to play the fourth F to E flat. But you must stress the two fingerings from the beginning and um, always doing like a little game and next day, okay, first person that can hold up a fourth F gets a high five or whatever, or a fist bump or I don't know, like an elbow now so you don't get germs. But, and so just little games like that, but having, uh, making sure that those students know the, at least the regular F and fork death fingering from the beginning is very, very important. So I know a lot of um, beginning clarinet classes, they'll teach the clarinet players to hold the thumb rest with their thumb and their finger at first, since they're mostly using their left hand. Do you do anything like that with oboe or just go ahead and have them start with the thumb on the thumb rest right away? Um, I start with the thumb on the thumb rest right away, but making, uh, being clear about oboe posture and how to hold the instrument, a lot of oboists and clarinetists will just bring their entire thumb across <laughs> the thumb rest. And obviously that's not going to work out very well, but that seems like the biggest issue. And so making sure that you teach them that the uh, very tip of your thumb is where you're going to land at the edge of your thumb rest. Uh, most of my students buy these little gummy thumb rests because it's more comfortable because then after a week or so they complain. I'm like, well, just get a cheap thumb rest. And then they do. And so just teaching them that it's at the very tip of your thumb that you're going to be holding the instrument. Um, but 
I teach my students that you're either hovering over a key or you're covering the key. So I say hover or cover whenever their fingers are trying to fly off. And so when I teach them even just to be natural with their left hand, which is just your first finger in your left hand, I teach them that they have to have the fingering, the fingers in the right hand touching the bottom keys, hmm. um, not pressing down, but touching them so that they can stay still. Some of the biggest oboe issues lie in trying, maybe their fingers are trying to be too close and they're trying to hold the whole oboe with the side of their hand, like with their palm, and they're going to hit like their side A flat key and then everything's going to squeak on them. Um, or they're leaning with their left hand on the side octave key and then it's still going to squeak or go up an octave depending on when you're playing. So making sure that their hands are staying rounded um, is going to be their best bet, keeping those palms open. Uh, with the oboe, your fingers aren't perpendicular to it. Um, they are curved and they're going to curve. Your wrist is going to kind of turn towards your body and the fingers are going to be curved downwards. Um, but I do teach them to start with holding the oboe with, correctly with their thumb underneath the thumb rest and where to put that thumb. And they show me and I say, check your neighbor, make sure they're doing it right. And that kind of thing. So I know in the in a lot of the beginner books, you know, the, the oboe spend most of their time on third space, B flat up to C above the staff. Um, I've noticed a lot of times students have trouble getting their low range to work really well. Um, do you have any tips for how to develop that lower range? Yes. Uh, from the beginning, just start having your double reed players or oboists just going down the oboe finger by finger and going down to the low C. The students can learn a C scale immediately. Uh, I had beginners and some will have a harder time with this and that's okay. Um, but I had some beginners that just learned their C scale within the second class of playing the oboe, which is great. Um, but you do have to just Start from the like from the beginning when you go B A G. Keep adding a finger F sharp E D and then getting to that low C. The way that you get the notes without that uh, have nothing to do with the fingers is that you have to use less reed in your mouth and you have to drop your jaw in order to get the low notes to come out. Um, I teach my students to identify when they have to have a firmer embouchure and how to make your embouchure firm, and I can describe that in a second. Um, and when to have an open jaw and to make sure that they're playing the notes right. And so I tell them like, okay, look, we're going to play C scale or whatever. What are you going to do on your very first note, low C? How are, how are you going to play that? So they have to be able to tell me that they're, they're going to use less read. They have to drop their jaw. And on low notes, a trick for oboe is to start with your tongue on the read. Don't go to and then hit the read, but start with your tongue on it and then just release the air. It's a trick for oboe. It might be for other instruments as well, um, but for low notes only. And to start on a low note, I should be more specific. Um, in our high notes, we have to be uh, more firm, um, keeping the same structure of having your jaw down when you say the word mo, keeping your jaw low, um, but treating your uh, embouchure like a drawstring bag, like one of those college bags. I still have my Mason college backpack. And just pulling, when you pull those strings, it gets tighter all the way around. It doesn't just get tighter uh, from the top and the bottom. So you don't want to get firmer with your lips using just pressure from your teeth going down and uh, going up on the lower jaw, going down and upper and squishing your lips tight. You have to make your embouchure firm by, um, by pulling the invisible drawstrings and making your embouchure just get smaller in a circle. It should be equal pressure all the way around, especially from the sides of your reeds and not up and down. Mm. Um, so when we do our high notes, we have to make sure that we are getting firmer in order to play them more accurately. In low notes, we have to make them, uh, you have to be a lot more relaxed and open. Because uh, you can 
drop, you can get up the octave when you just even use too much air or when you uh, uh, don't have the right fingers. But if you're too firm, you just, you're not going to be able to achieve all of your low notes. So staying relaxed, using less read, and then vice versa for the high notes. So when you uh, get into teaching them the um, the half hole octave for like D and E flat, um, do you have them like roll or slide their finger down? I love that question. Okay, so half hole is such a big deal on oboe and bassoon, and I teach them to uh, rock their finger back and forth, but I show them like how minimal my finger movement is. Like I'm rocking mm. that one finger back and forth but you don't need to put your whole finger on that little extra key section for the half hole. You don't have to cover exactly half the hole. Like I stress that you only need to slightly uncover that hole. And so we practice just doing that. And then the kids can like hold their oboe um, with their right hand on their lap. And then we just practice doing that very slowly and moving our fingers and seeing how much, see, I will feeling, I guess um, what that feels like. And then we try it on our instrument. So I tell them that, as long as your, your mouth is relaxed, you have, you, your embouchure is correct, then you're going to play a low D if you have all your fingers down. And then we're going to try rocking our finger and very, very slowly and seeing how far we actually have to rock our finger to get um, the D and the staff to come out. Uh, teaching your students the pro to, to play half hole with rocking the finger from the get-go after you start teaching your B, A, G, F sharp, D, and when you start going from an F to an E flat and teaching them how to do that and their... Uh, Half hole is super, super important. And I know with bassoons on their G, it's so challenging. Bassoons, I think you need a little more than half hole showing, but oboes, you don't need very much. It's a very slight opening. So just practicing first is the hand movement of very, very um, small movements to rock your finger back and forth. And then having the students do that on their own and showing them that you don't need to move your entire finger and then actually trying to play it. Um, I have one student that moved in that lifts up their finger to play from half hole to the full thing and bless his heart. <laughs> it's just tough and it's hard to relearn after you're so used to doing uh, lifting your finger. It just doesn't always work for you. Yeah. And so making sure that you teach your students how to rock very carefully and minimal movements is beneficial. Yeah. Now when you get into the high range, um, someone told me once that when you play the, like the A and the B flat above the staff, you know, it's supposed to be the, the side octave key. And they told me that you can hold the side octave key and the thumb octave key when you play those notes and it doesn't really matter. Would there, would you advocate for that? Or would, be, would there be a time when the, that you would do that? Or would you just stick with the side key? I don't teach the students that for the high A and high B flat to keep their octave key down. I tell them that it'll still work if they keep their back octave down. I only teach side octave. Um, I, even now, I never play anything by keeping my back octave uh, pressed in the in that high range you can and some teachers like to do that um and like to teach it that way so for them it's it might be easy to play faster things in the high register by keeping the back octave pressed but to me it did not change the speed of anything that i played and i actually prefer not to have my thumb in use if i don't need it and only because it can add extra tension to your hands i like to keep my thumb close to the oboe, but not touching it. So whenever I never, whenever I don't need to use my thumb, I don't use it to avoid more tension in my hands. Gotcha. Now I notice sometimes that when my students play certain notes, they get kind of like a growling Chewbacca kind of sound. What is like a typical cause for that? I do love Star Wars, but I don't like it when oboes sound like that. <laughs> um, so typically when there's that Chewbacca sound, a lot of the time it's just their 
either not using half hole for a specific note. That happens a lot on a D flat or a D. Um, and they're getting that Chewbacca sound because they're either not using their half hole and they're trying to get it to work. And it's just coming out in both octaves and it's just not working. Um, or it could be that they're trying to play a low note and their embouchure isn't set the right way. So you're, they're getting the upper octaves or trying to get the upper octaves while getting the lower ones as well. So that's typically when you hear a Chewbacca sound, it's just either their embouchure is not correct because they're trying to play low, but their embouchure is too firm or they're just, their half full is not there. Um, is there a specific note that your students have that's happened to that's not any of those? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I just remember like, you know, I, I I try to check for, you know, if there's, if there's water covering some of the keys, um, I know that that can cause that, but sometimes like it, like we've checked that and, you know, we've like blown air into it and we've used like, Mm -hmm. you know, like the cigarette paper on the, uh, on the, on the pads and like, we can't Mm -hmm. find any moisture and the fingers look okay. And I'm just, Hmm. at that point, I'm like, I don't know if like maybe the reed is just, you know, vibrating in a strange fashion. Mm. Get that sound. Um, so I love that you know how to do the, the taking the spit out of the keys. It's like my favorite thing that most people don't know how to do. And I love teaching that. <laughs> and when I can, I tell my kids that it's cigarette paper and they all think it's like insane. Like, <laughs> nope, I don't smoke, but okay. Um, but definitely there are situations where there's spit stuck under a key, but it won't sound like a, it won't sound like Chewbacca, I guess. It'll just kind of like hear like a fluttery, spitty sound when you play a certain note and most likely in the upper joint when you're playing a B, A, or a G is where the spit gets stuck. Um, but in terms of the Chewbacca sound, I, do, <laughs> I love that. Uh, I do think that it is whether it could be your half hole or it's they're trying to play a lower note. It might be the read. It might not let them play their lower notes, but for the most part, it's going to work if you have your right embouchure, even if it's not a super fantastic read. Gotcha. All right. Now for, uh, for some more controversial questions. Yes. Um, so most districts allow four oboe players to make their all district band. And I've, Mm -hmm. I've definitely heard, and and this is, you know, especially outside of, uh, you know, the more populated areas. Um, I've heard a lot of band directors express frustration with that and think that it should be less than four. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because I guess sometimes in, you know, we hit like concert band of high school, not all four are going to be superstars in, you know, in some, in some districts. Do you have any thoughts about quantity of oboe players in a particular ensemble? Ooh, okay. That is, that is very controversial. Um, so I guess I have, to, I have a biased view being an oboist myself, but in band director, with my band director hat on, I do love that students are all getting the opportunity to play and be a part of this program. While there is a point where are there, if there's only four oboists in your district, then they're all going to get in and they are all going to sound very different. And I saw once uh, (laughs) that the oboists were all put, they were slowly taken back a row until they were in the back row. (laughs) And, um, and when I say I saw that happen, I mean, I was there. And so (laughs) that was me. And so that same thing happened. I, uh, I went to school in a small district and (laughs) there were only like four oboists. I think there was, they allowed four in and maybe there was six in the whole district. And so we slowly, they were slowly pushed us back. And I mean, I still had the best time of my life and uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity do I really, I don't remember what this band sounded like, but I'm also like, well, you know, if we have so many oboes and it's going to ruin the balance and the experience of other students as well, 
but there's always the opportunity of throwing them in the back row. So, uh, but I do believe that every student should get an opportunity. And there are the problems where if you're going to put a student in this band, but they're not even able to play the music, then it's not enjoyable for them. So that should be something that maybe the director kind of decides like, yeah, okay, the student, yeah, we only have four oboes in the whole district and there's four spaces, but the student is not going to enjoy their time in this honor band when they can't play music or they just started learning the instrument or whatever it might be. Um, so definitely being flexible with that. But students having fun experiences, yay, <laughs> throw them in the back row. <laughs> yeah. So I saw on your uh, your band website, it mentioned some things about teaching creativity uh, in band. How would you approach that in, in a concert band setting? So... I guess by by creativity, um, we do have we do exercises where students have kind of like say. I do an exercise called copycat, and the leader kind of changes. So I have when we do articulation exercises, like I'll play on a read, and they copy back whatever I just played, and then we'll change up the leaders. And so sometimes we'll have where there's four kids in a row, and we create either a song just using one note and articulating or we give each kid a certain note and they can articulate their note and we can line them up and teach them different ways. I mean, it's just a fun kind of game to play while you're still practicing how to do something important and practical. There are uh, times where the students lead our warmups. And so instead, once they're, once they kind of know how to do that and, uh, and they understand how to play it and then we'll have student volunteers when I'm out, if I have a sub, and I have a class that is mature. I have a student do the warm-ups. If it's not a music sub, if, if I'm stuck with someone who doesn't know how to teach band, then I have a student lead the warm-ups and then they can do something individual. But I do like to have students have the opportunity to become leaders in the class in different ways and that kind of thing. If I have a student who's stronger than other students, I definitely um, have them sitting next to students that are weaker. I do a lot of, okay, look at your neighbor and see if they're doing it right while I walk around, if it's a big class. And so we make sure that we do that or I sit students in a way that that they're going to be successful. I don't try to put all the uh, more advanced students in one in one side and all the weaker students on the other side. That's not going to be beneficial for any of them. But having the uh, more advanced students helping the younger students, I've seen only positive things happen from that. I haven't seen anything negative like the um, weaker students complaining or yelling. It's, it's always been very positive. Maybe I just have good kids so far, but <laughs> but definitely putting uh, students that are more advanced into a more leadership role um, will help those students, will help the young, well, not younger, but the um, less strong students be more successful. And yeah, I guess uh, more creative things. We uh, I told you how we let them lead a lot or do games like the like copycat um, I have students who want to learn how to compose and they want to write their own songs. And so I don't do in class things with that. I do, it's all after school. So we have before and after school band club and it's just a time where they can get extra help or they can bring a friend and they all hang out and play together and it's adorable and really fun. And, uh, and we do that every single day. Typically, uh, Martin is the one that wakes up early. So he does the morning one. And I like to stay up late and work late. And so I'm there in the afternoons. And so we, got, we have a good relationship that way. Or we both decide, hey, we're going to be there in the morning because we're doing a flute uh, club and, and a clarinet club. So you can take flutes, I'll take clarinets. And so we do that kind of thing. But if student wants to learn extra musical things, then that's the time to do it. 
<laughs> Something I totally forgot to mention in this whole process was that there we just started holding a Loudoun County Double Read Day the first year that I started there, and uh, another oboe teacher coached me about it, and um, and she was like, "I really want to do this." I'm like, "I really want to do this too. Like, let's just make this happen." And we kind of did. And something I totally should have mentioned um, to many districts that don't have a Double Read Day uh, is to maybe try implementing that kind of thing with. Um, private oboe teachers in their area and doing that. It's, it's really a lot of fun and kids learn a lot. They didn't know about band directors from their band directors. So something interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, would you feel comfortable uh, if they reached out to you for assistance, if they wanted to get something like that off the ground? Oh, for sure. I have everything needed to do that. <laughs> awesome. Yes. And I have some resources that I can send you that I've made all together of like for beginning oboes, method books, instruments that they could use, where to get reads, um, intermediate oboe resources. I have some lists of things. I don't know if you want that, but I can send you some stuff to put together in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. I can put it all in the show notes for the episode so people can click on it and, and find it. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah, I'll great. <laughs> all right. Well, I think I, that brings us to our interview Cody here. I have three questions I'd like to ask everybody. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one, do you have a mentor shout out? Ooh. Um, <laughs> uh, as for oboe professors, I do, I would love to uh, shout out um, Dr. Lori Bircher Brown. She retired from the Army Band and she was one of my professors at Mason, and Dr. Meg Owens, who teaches there now as one of the um, adjunct oboe faculty. Fantastic person as a, both of those. You can ask them for resources. My private students, I take them to them after, after a certain amount of time and like, Hey, hang out with them, have a lesson. I, or I bring uh, them to my camps and things like that to work with them. And then they're still my students and I still work with them, but they have been two amazing uh, oboe teachers as well as a woman named Laurel Seiberts. And she was my first private teacher. And so um, those three, as for oboists, uh, oboe mentors, those three are my go-to ladies. Awesome. Do you have a favorite beginning band piece? Ooh, um, I don't have a favorite. Uh, there, It is hard to find good beginning band pieces. <laughs> if we're looking for one that doesn't bring the clarinets over the break or trumpets, I think, above the B flat, <laughs> uh, there's Majestica by Brian Balmages. And that's a, that's a great beginner piece. I really enjoy that one. Uh, last year, we tried a piece called so we have a lot of kids in our, in our band program. So we divided our sixth grade band into three uh, groups in our spring concert. So we had one group that was more advanced. We did not tell the kids this information and we just put them in a band and we just said, you're in purple band, red band and green band, whatever it was. And, or polar bear band, panda, whatever we decided. And um, so there was one band that played different music and then the other two bands played the same. And that was less challenging music. And the band that played more advanced music, one of the pieces that the kids enjoyed that was that was challenging for them was um, Along the Crystal Coast. And I can't remember the composer and I feel horrible, um, but it has a lot of clarinets. I think it goes up to a high D for clarinet and trumpets. Um, and it, there's a the tempo is slow at the beginning and then gets faster as an accelerando and then it slows down again at the end. And it's a recap from the beginning. It's just a great piece that includes a lot of different uh different everything, different tempos, like watching the conductor uh, from Ada's and different articulations. And those two are cool. I'd never heard of the Along the Crystal Coast until last year. It's a cool one to check out. All right, number three. 
Uh, name a band director who you think is crushing it right now. Ooh. Or several, <laughs> you know, we could take more than one. Hilarious. I love this. There are too many band directors that are crushing it right now. Um, I would say, wow, there are so many. I want to shout out my boy, Martin Blount, but I can't do that because that's kind of like cheating. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, one of my favorite human beings on earth is Doug Martin. He teaches at Langley High School. And um, I student taught with him when I was a kid, when I was a kid, when I was younger. And uh, and he's the best and I love him. And so shout out to, to Doug Martin. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real treat. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about oboe, and I hope I didn't talk too much. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course not. You know what time it is. This week's pick is Dark Adventure by Ralph Ford, published by Alfred. Since today's episode is all about the oboe, I thought I would pick a piece that has a really fun oboe part. Dark Adventure is a staple of our Halloween concerts, but it could be played year-round. After a creepy, slow opening, it kicks into high gear with a unison minor theme, And then the flutes and oboes come in with a super creepy melody with lots of accidentals. After the melody gets transferred around to a few different sections, the piece takes on a more mellow atmosphere with a beautiful trumpet solo. After the bow, the intro material is recapped for an exciting finish. Some things that I love about this piece are that there are sections with unison playing and sections with dense harmony. The main melody has a lot of accidentals, which is great for reading. There's a good amount of percussion, including a lot of Latin percussion, and an optional vibraphone part that adds a lot of great color. You'll want to be sure you have a bass clarinet for this piece, if possible, because it adds so much rich flavor and dark color. But in case you don't, the the low brass section has extensive cues. There's only one part per instrument, and the clarinets and trumpets don't go above B-flat. If you would like to buy this piece or listen to it in its entirety, please check out the show notes for the link. This has been... All right, everybody, that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to check us out on Facebook, we have our page there, at The Flying Baton. And you can find the show notes as well as a bunch of other information on our website, theflyingbaton.com. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining us on The Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.